Thank you, worship team. Before we continue our time of worship in the Word, let me say a couple things to you, and then we'll dig into the Word. Um, the pageant Friday night was incredible. If you were here Friday night, you just um, knew the hand of God was on this. We prayed over this thing so much, and God just blessed, and, and uh, this place was packed. We had uh, chairs out. I'm going to tell you something. I had to admit, oh, me of little faith. I did not think the Friday night would be the biggest time, and actually uh, uh, some said, why don't you put some chairs out? No, let's don't put any chairs out just yet, and, and then we had to actually delay the start time to put more chairs out, a second round of chairs, uh, because this place was so full, uh, but it was not just full of people. This place was full of the presence of God, and uh, lives were touched. People surrendered their lives to Christ, and it was just a, a powerful evening, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what God does tonight. And I pray we'll have as many people, maybe even more, uh, here tonight, and that God's presence will be here again, and that He will touch lives. So if you were not here Friday night, then let me encourage you to come tonight, bring people with you, and then just pray. Pray over the event tonight, pray for everything to go just as smooth as it went on Friday night, and for the Lord to be lifted up and glorified during our time. Also remember that next Sunday um, Sunday morning will be our commitment day for the capital campaign. We want to come next Tuesday, or next Tuesday, next um, Sunday morning with a, a gift to give that day, an immediate impact gift to give toward our building fund, and then be able to, to turn our card in that day is just an act of commitment with the help of the Lord and by His grace that we're committing to give on a monthly basis next year whatever amount the Lord places on our hearts. And uh, so I just encourage you to um, be in prayer about that this week. Come prepared for that next week. As you leave today, uh, there'll be ushers at the door as usual, and they'll also have a pledge card for you. Please pick up one of those and take with you and uh, think and pray on that this week and then come prepared for that next week. A third thing I want to mention to you today is this Bible reading plan that Brother Bobby has mentioned, and it's, been, it's out here on our welcome desk. I really desire to encourage everyone to be a part of spending time with God this next year. So if you would just pick up one of those reading plans and just follow that plan, use that in your time with the Lord each day, set aside a time that you will pray and you will read your Bible, and, read, and so do that together. Uh, and if you'll come at that this next year with a desire to learn, a desire to grow in the Lord, a desire to seek God a desire to have Him transform your life so that when He's speaking to us through His Word, we're doing it, we're applying that to our lives. I'm going to tell you this. This time next year, you will be a different person. You will be closer to the Lord. You will have a closer intimacy with the Lord. So I'm encouraging all of us to be a part of that this next year. So you can pick up one of those reading plans as you leave. just has some key passages in the Bible. And they're kind of linked together chronologically, one chapter per day, uh, a psalm for the weekend. And then what you do, if you read that psalm and you have nothing else to read, go back and reread some things then from the week. I've been for three days in the reading for Friday, 1 John chapter 2. I've been just digging in that, in that chapter for the past three days, and it's just been rich. It's just God's really encouraged me and strengthened me through that. And so if we'll do that, uh, it, it'll be amazing. Now... Now, I know there's going to be every excuse in the world why uh, you, know, you can't do that, but there's really no excuse. If we'll just discipline ourselves to do it, we're going to meet with God 
every day. The first Sunday of January, Lord willing, I plan to preach a message entitled Craving Scripture. And I want to talk about what it looks like to have that time with God each day. So we just kind of have that to start the year with. And so please pick up a, a plan um, when you leave today and then do that this next year. Two things and then we're going to pray. Actually, three things and we're going to pray. Many of you have heard uh, that Mac Woods went to be with the Lord on Friday afternoon. That was a major shock for many of us, how deeply we love Mac and his family and just the blessing he is to me personally, the prayer warrior, the encourager. And I would pray together a good bit uh, on Sunday nights in our prayer time, and uh, I will miss him dearly. But here's what I know. He's with the Lord. And so we want to pray for Miss Deborah and, and, the, and the kids, the grandkids, just praying for God's comfort and strength uh, in their lives. And we don't know really any details about service time yet, so we'll get that information out and, um, as soon as we uh, hear about that. And then also, Miss Louise Lane, one of our senior adult uh, ladies, fell and broke her hip, and she is uh, having a hip surgery this morning at Flowers. So we want to pray for Miss Louise and pray for God's touch upon her. And then finally, uh, Renee Chadwell's mom, Connie, has been having some really severe health problems, and they're on their way to in Gainesville, uh, Derek, Jacksonville. I'm sorry. So it's Jacksonville for uh, further testing and to meet with some doctors to try to figure out what's exactly going on there. So I've been praying for Connie for some time now, and I want to ask you to join me in doing that, and that they get some answers, and that God just intervenes in that. So let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for this time of year. I thank you for the time to reflect upon the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray, Father, that today, Lord, you will prepare our hearts, help our, our minds, our hearts to be open to hear what you have for us to hear this morning. Lord, in my weakness, I know that I cannot preach the Word of God without you, so I'm asking for ability that you supply to enable me to be that vessel to communicate the truth of your Word. I desire, Lord, to exalt Jesus. I desire, Lord, to glorify you. I desire to be faithful to deliver the message that you have placed on my heart, and I pray that it will benefit every person who hears this Word. Lord, I pray you'll take away distractions, and I pray, Lord God, you will be glorified as people respond in obedience to your truth. Lord, I pray for a special touch of comfort on the Woods family right now. May the peace of God, Lord, be poured out on them. Lord, I pray, Father, for Miss Louise, and I ask you to intervene, oversee that surgery, and I pray you'd give her a miraculous recovery. And Lord, I pray for Connie, and I ask you, Lord God, they would get answers. And I pray, Lord God, that you would intervene to bring healing in Connie's life. Lord, please just bring peace to all of them now. And Father, again, I pray for that clarity of mind and clarity of speech that I need so desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and then also I'll go over into chapter 2 as well. The series of messages that I'm preaching this Christmas season is called The Cries of Christmas. And today's subject is the cry from the cradle, or more specifically, the cry from the manger. Uh, his cradle was a, a manger or a feed trough. Now, that might be something that we expect to hear 
this time of year. But I want you to know that the rest of these cries that we're talking about are inextricably linked to the cry from the cradle. Last week, we dealt with the cry of the curse. We talked about the fall of humanity. And I said to you last week that if we're going to really look at Christmas, then we need to start not with Mary and Joseph, but with Adam and Eve. And then we can get a full picture of what's taking place and why we celebrate uh, what, we, what we do. This week, we're talking about the cry from the cradle. And then next week, we will talk about the cry from the cross. And then on Christmas Eve morning in that combined service, I will deal with the cry at His coming. And then that 4 o'clock service on Christmas Eve, I'll deal with the cry of confession, calling out to Him to be our Savior. But today, we're dealing with this subject, the cry from the cradle. Now, when a child is born, parents and really all who are in that labor room anticipate a cry. Everyone wants to hear that infant cry. And there may be a bit of anxiety until they hear that, that cry because that cry is a sign of life, that things are, are good. But that infant cry that split the air on that clear night in Bethlehem so long ago was more than an indicator that the child had life. That cry was the very cry of life. It was that very child, that being that brought life into the universe. It was that child who would bring people out of darkness, death, and sin to eternal life. He's the very seed that was mentioned in our study last week in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He is the hope and deliverance from the curse of sin. Now let me just kind of recap this morning about what I talked about last week to set the stage for what I'll do in the final moments of this time this morning and digging into these texts for today out of Luke's gospel. But last week we talked about the cry of the curse, Adam and Eve being the first two human beings made by God Himself or living in fellowship with God. They had everything they needed there in that perfect environment. God had told them to eat freely of every tree in the garden except for one. There was one they were not to, but they had everything in abundance that they needed. They had been given a purpose, a very fulfilling purpose, to have dominion over the world. They were to be fruitful and to multiply. Uh, they could not have had it any better. But in that garden, Eve encountered Satan. And Satan tempted her, and he deceived her to eat of that tree which God said not to eat of. Now, God had placed that tree there for a purpose. God was constantly reminding these two that their purpose was to glorify Him, to serve Him, to worship Him. And the way they would be able to do that was to obey Him. And so there's a very clear command. You can have everything here, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they would glorify Him by submitting themselves to obey Him in that way. But Satan had a strategy. He was going to call into question God's Word. He wanted them to call into question the goodness of God. He desired them to reject the authority of God's Word, which is exactly what Satan continues to do today. And so he tempted Eve. And he basically told her this. I'm going to 
kind of paraphrase it. He said, God's trying to keep you from becoming like him. He's trying to hold things back from you. He's trying to really keep you from being who you were meant to be. Now, the enemy still uses his strategy. Doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, this is happening all over the, uh, all around us today and even in our own lives. The enemy is saying, listen, unless you do this, you're going to miss out. Unless you embrace this desire in your life, then you're going to miss out in being who you are made to be. And all these things, and, and, he, and he's saying, did God really say that? And, and then he says, no, God does not say this. And he's doing all those things to lead people to doubt the goodness of God, question the Word of God, deny the authority of God's Word. Eve was deceived, and she partook of that fruit, and then she gave that to her husband who willfully disobeyed God. He rebelled against God. He knew better. He received the, the initial command. He was not deceived, and yet he still disobeyed God. And then, because they did that, they committed the ultimate crime, which is sin against God, that carries the ultimate penalty. And that ultimate penalty is death, not just physical death, but also spiritual death. The curse of sin entered death. And it, uh, it came because of this disobedience and it affected all of creation, all the animal kingdom, all of the human race. Everything has been affected by this. The Bible tells us all of creation now groans to be reconciled and relieved from the curse of sin. Even those of us who've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we groan to be um, further clothed. What that means is to have a spiritual resurrection body, not this one that's tainted by the curse of sin, but the one like Jesus uh, displayed at His resurrection. There is a groaning and a longing to be delivered from the effects of the curse. As God was pronouncing the consequences for their sin, He started with Satan. But in the midst of these consequences, He gave hope. And here's what the Word of God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This seed would be a descendant that that came from woman. It would be one born of woman, and he would crush Satan's head, which means he would destroy the works of Satan. What was the works of Satan? Well, he deceived Eve, and then Adam willfully disobeyed. And here's what took place. The curse of sin entered in and affected everything. It alienated human beings from God. That's what Satan did. That was the result of his work. But there would be one who would come and destroy that work and ultimately absolutely defeat the enemy, Satan. Now, that seed that we're talking about here is Christ. After the fall, there were people who began to worship God. They worshiped Him in faith and, and their sins were temporarily covered until an ultimate sacrifice would come in the future that would destroy the works of the curse. And that is the seed talked about in the, in the garden and, and uh, that is Christ. Matter of fact, what God did is He chose a man by the name of Abram and He changed His name to Abraham. 
And he chose him to be a nation that would represent him on the earth. And uh, this people group would, would uh, tell of the greatness of God and would encourage people to worship the one true God. Now, they failed at that miserably in many different aspects, but they were chosen of God to do just that. But from them, one would come, a Messiah, one would come that would destroy the works of the enemy and reconcile people to God that believed on Him. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, God told Abraham that from his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, said this. He gave us a clear identifier of who this seed is. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The Old Testament tells us the story of God's redemptive work, why it needs to be done, how it would be done. Matter of fact, the Old Testament not only reveals history to us, not only does it reveal things about God we could not know without this revelation, not only does it tell, tell us what's wrong and what is right, but the Old Testament points to Christ. Matter of fact, the sacrificial system and the Old Testament law, all of that was put in place pointing people to that Messiah, that ultimate one who would come to take away sin. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus appeared to two men after His resurrection. They were on their way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and as they walked along, the Lord appeared to them, and He's walking with them, and He supernaturally hid His identity from them. And He gets in a conversation with them, and they're talking about all the events that's happened. They said, you know, there was one who came, and we thought, surely this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. But He was crucified, and what's more perplexing is that there's some of our number that said He has been risen, He has been resurrected from the dead. And the Lord Jesus finally revealed himself uh, to these two men and showed them who he was. But he said this in verse 27 of Luke chapter 24, And beginning at Moses, all the prophet, and with all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what he was doing is he was telling them, Look, here's what all the Old Testament scriptures say about me. Matter of fact, he went on to say to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. There are many prophecies of the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says that a virgin would bear a son... His name would be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 lets us know that in Bethlehem, this Savior, this Messiah would be born. There are actually hundreds of prophecies that foretell the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, all pointing to the fact that He is coming. And Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled them all. Now, let me take a moment to tell you how significant that is. Many of you probably know who Lee Strobel is. He's a Christian apologist. 
but he wasn't always that. Lee Strobel was a Yale-educated lawyer who was an investigative journalist and an atheist. And his wife came to Christ, and it infuriated him. And he set out to disprove that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And so he began to look. And matter of fact, in this quest to do that, he actually came to know Christ as his Savior, was converted. One of the things that stood out to Strobel was how that the prophecies of the Old Testament were so literally fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. He could not just simply ignore that. He had to try to figure out how, you know, how could this be? Is it possible these things could have happened by chance? And so he looked at the work of Peter Stoner, a mathematician, who did some numbers on um, you know, what are the odds of these prophecies being fulfilled by chance. Uh, so I'll give you one of Peter Stoner's um, examples. He said that if eight of these prophecies were fulfilled simply by chance, the odds of that happening by chance is one and ten to the seventeenth power. So that means one chance in a one with seventeen zeros on the on the on that number, whatever number that is, that's the chances of that happening by by simple just just chance. It would be like taking a one and a half inch square tiles and placing them on the land mass of all the earth over all seven continents, just putting that all over those seven continents, painting the back of one of those tiles red, putting them all down, and then giving someone a lifetime to walk over those seven continents. And then at one time, you, you lean down and you choose a tile, and you must choose the tile that has the red painted on the back of it. That's, that's an illustration of what it would be like, the odds of these eight, just eight of these being fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. But there are hundreds of them. What does this tell us? We better pay attention to who Jesus is. It speaks of historical accuracy and reliability that He is who He claimed to be. He is that seed prophesied in the garden. He is the Son that is testified by the Old Testament. Well, let's take a look at the narrative for today. In the last moments I have here, I want to go through some things that the Scripture reveals Christ to be. Look with me in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come, uh, having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? 
See, Mary thought this would be something that would happen immediately. She did not know how this could be possible. She was betrothed to her husband. They were like legally married at the time, but there had been no consummation of this union. And she was thinking, how can this happen? She's not doubting. She said, how can this be? Because I do not know a man. And the angel said to her in verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was, gover- was governing Syria. So also, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The main idea of this message is the Christ child in the cradle or manger came to conquer the enemy and deliver people from the curse of sin, which is death. In the garden, there was a fallen angel who came to Eve with a deceptive message. In the context of today, there was an elect angel that came to Mary and shepherds giving a message of hope and joy. Mary received that message. She submitted herself to God's will, and Joseph, her betrothed, had to be convinced by an angel who appeared to her, to him, in a dream. And you can imagine that he needed a little bit of convincing after Mary told her story. In Luke's gospel, Luke begins in chapter 2 with some details of the historical Context of what was taking place. He mentions that Caesar Augustus was emperor and that he had decreed for a census to take place. So God had used this ungodly emperor and his sovereignty to do something that led to the fulfillment of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 where Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem so that the Christ child would be born there. Something interesting in my study also is that Augustus was the very one who established the elaborate road system of Rome so that after the resurrection of Christ and the apostles received their commission, that road system served to get the gospel to the world at that time. It shows how God can use no matter who because He is sovereign over all. 
They arrived in Bethlehem, not finding accommodations. They probably ended up in a stable because there was a, a manger or a feed trough used as a, a cradle. That gives us the, the idea that this happened where livestock were kept. There's a second century tradition that says it was in a cave, so maybe a cave where, where livestock were, were kept. And the Lord Jesus Christ was born there. Shepherds were out in the fields watching over their flocks, and angels appeared to them with this great message of joy and hope. And even though they were terrified, he said to them, No, listen, don't be, don't be afraid because... What I'm bringing you is great news for all people, news of great joy. The angel said to Mary and to the shepherds four things I want to leave you with this morning. First thing is this. This child, who is he? Well, the first thing we see about him is that he is great, the Word of God says. Notice that in verse 31 and 32. Verse 31 says... You will conceive. The moment I read those words, I thought back to that garden scene where the curse consequences were being delivered. And to Eve, God said that with pain you will conceive and give birth. And here we see one that will conceive, not by natural means, but by supernatural means, and a son would be born. Would be that son that was prophesied about in the Garden of Eden. His name would be called Jesus. The Hebrew is Joshua. Yahweh saves. His humanness is emphasized in that statement. But he's called great. His very essence is great. If we back up more into chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, we'll find that there's a priest by the name of Zacharias who um, was the father of John the Baptist, and an angel appeared to him and let him know that even though he and his wife were way past childbearing, they were going to have a child, and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy that came 400 years earlier, 400 years of silence uh, from God, and then suddenly he breaks that silence with that angelic message to Zechariah, and then six months later uh, to Mary, uh, gives this great word of the Christ child that would be Born. Now, John the Baptist was described as great in the sight of God, but Jesus is described as just great. His very essence is great. He was no ordinary child. Not only was he fully human, but he's also fully God. See, Jesus did not come into being 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He's always existed because he's part of the Trinity. He is God the Son. The Bible says in John's Gospel in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word, Word, there speaks of Jesus. You go on down to verse 14 in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. The eternal God the Son added humanity to Himself. This is something that I've grappled with for years and years, and I cannot even come close to getting my mind around this. But in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible lets us know that He came in the form of a bondservant. In the, he came in the likeness of man. God the Son so limited His divine display of glory. He did not set aside His divine attributes, but He limited the display of them down to a conception stage human being. That is an amazing thing. 
so that he would enter the realm of man to redeem people. What a God. What a God we serve, brothers and sisters. And so he was the greatest human who ever lived. He was completely sinless. He accomplished what Adam did not. The Bible describes Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam did not obey, and he sinned. Christ, being the second Adam, obeyed God the Father perfectly. And that was necessary for us to be rescued from the curse of sin by Him. That's the reason that He came. And to be that rescuer, He had to become human. Why? Well, first, to be our representative of obedience, because none of us have obeyed. The Bible tells us that Adam, as I mentioned a moment ago, failed to be righteous because he disobeyed. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 tells us that his sin led to condemnation for all. But through Christ's obedience, his righteousness um, can be for all people who believe in him. So what he did is he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He obeyed in every aspect of life and never sinned. But then secondly, he had to be human to be our substitute. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means to satisfy God's justice. That's what that means. And for that to happen, he had to become a human being to do that. To live a sinless life, to die in our place, and then to rise again to redeem those who believe in him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now you may say, wait a minute. It says there, all shall be made alive. Does that mean everyone is going to be saved? The Bible tells us that all die if you're in Adam. I'm telling you every human being is in Adam because we've all descended from Adam. But not every human being is in Christ. Those who are made alive are those who are in Christ. How do you get in Christ? You get in Christ through faith in Him. You repent, you by faith call on Him to be your Lord and Savior, and then you are in Christ. You are in union with Christ. And when you're in union with Christ in this relationship with Him, here's what happens. His substitutionary death atones for our sins. And based on His death, our sin is wiped clean. His perfectly sinless and obedient life that he lived is also attributed to us and imputed to us so that we are justified before God. That word there means to be made right before God. And all that's possible because this great one came. But he's not only great, the Bible describes him here by these angels as God. Notice in verse 32, the word of God says, and and will be called the Son of the Highest. That title is a title for deity. It speaks of the fact that He is God. This is stressed elsewhere in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament that, that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God the Son. Now, 
To be our substitute, he had to be perfect. And there's no human being that's perfect, so that's why he also had to not only be human, but he had to be God. (laughs) Because God's the only one that's perfect. And if there happened to be one that is perfect, somehow missed the inherited sin from Adam, the guilt from Adam, the sin nature from Adam, somehow that was blocked and they missed it and they, they lived a perfectly sinless life and did not uh, disobey God at all. Even if that were to happen, which it could not, but if, even if it were to happen, would it not be unjust of God to say to that person, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you and I'm going to satisfy my justice by putting you to death and you will bear my wrath. Would that not be an unjust thing? So God came himself. He came himself in the person of his son. And that's why Jesus is fully God. And this also points to the fact that no other religion or no other philosophy or so-called way is true. Jesus is God the Son. And that's been proven by the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 lets us know that through the resurrection, we know that He is God the Son, that He is the Son of the living God. And I want to tell you this, my brothers and sisters today, if Jesus Christ rose, He's God. If Jesus Christ rose, everything the apostles said about Him, everything they preached and wrote about Him is absolutely true. If Jesus rose... There is no other religion, no other philosophy, no other way to God, only Jesus. You can go to the graves of religious leaders and philosophers, and those graves are still occupied by the bones of those leaders, but Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive. We better trust Him. We better trust Him. He is great. He is God. But a third thing the angels say about Him is He is King. Verse 32b and verse 33, the Scripture says, The Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. Now, the first statements made by Gabriel to Mary sort of describe the life you know, his birth, life, and death could really all be summed up by implication in those phrases. But we get to this phrase. This is something that takes place uh, at another time. It comes at his second coming. Because what Christ will do is he will fulfill God's covenant made with David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, the Word of God says. I believe that will take place when the Lord Jesus returns, and I believe He will reign on this earth for 1,000 years, and He will fulfill all of that covenant at that time. And at the end of that 1,000-year reign, the Scripture teaches us that what will take place is the Lord will uncreate the world around us and recreate a new uh, universe, a new world, that is righteous. Second Peter 3, Revelation speaks of this as well as other places in, in Scripture. And He will reign forever and ever. And the Word of God teaches us in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5 that we will reign with Him. And what Adam could not do because he sinned against God, we will do for all eternity because the seed came and crushed the head of Satan and reconciled us back to God and gave us a resurrection body to reign with Christ forevermore. 
He is king. Finally, what we see here is He's Savior. Verse 11. And this is good news of great joy. That's why we sing joy to the world because of this. He is Savior. No man or woman can save herself or himself. There's nothing we can do to get out of the sinful state that we're in on our own. You can't go to church enough times. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't, you can't be kind enough to people to earn a spot and overcome the sin that we're tainted with and have that atoned for. We need a Savior. We need to be delivered by God. And so Jesus Christ is that Savior. He's called here Christ the Lord also. Christ speaks of the fact that He's Messiah. He's our mediator between us and God. But notice also He's called Lord. You see that? He's called Lord. And this stresses His authority. He's not simply Savior, He's Lord. And this is where people get it wrong sometimes. And they just kind of go through the motions. They pray a little prayer. They think they're okay. They, you know, they just want to have eternal fire insurance, so to speak. And they'll pray this little prayer. And there's no real true repentance happening in their hearts. There's no real true surrender to Christ happening in their lives. And their own church roles, there's no change ever takes place in their life. They go on living just like they want to. Jesus is not Lord of their life. They're living for themselves. That's not biblical Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. We live under His Lordship. We submit to Him. When God gave the word of how one would be born of woman who would crush Satan and through His works... Hope began. And on that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago when the night air carried the cry of an infant, hope had arrived. Jesus is our hope. He is our help. He is our Savior. Is He yours? Are you sure? If you have never called upon Him or you've just simply gone through the motions and there was never a change in your life, I'm going to tell you what you should do today. You should repent and call on Jesus to be your Savior. If by faith you're willing to turn from sin to Him today, I'm telling you what He'll do. He'll, he'll take your sin away. He'll make you right before God. He will change your life. You'll be born again. And I'm encouraging you, whether you're online watching us or whether you're right here in this room, the moment we stand to sing in a minute, I'd, I'd ask you to come down here and say, look, I need, to, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. If you're online, you, you just kneel in your floor of your living room and you, you call on Jesus to be your Savior. But what about us believers today? Are we truly living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ today? I, I want to I close out and read to you something out of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 3, the Word of God says this, Now by this, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. How do I know that I really do know God? 
How is it I really do have a relationship, that I know I have a relationship with him? The evidence is we obey him. You know why that is? You don't obey God to get a relationship with him. You obey God when you have a relationship with him. Because he so changes you, he changes your want-tos. And when you don't do right, you're so miserable, you know you're not doing right. You know you're not weak. You're out of a fellowship with God. And sometimes he has to chasten us. His discipline has to be strong on us to bring us back into fellowship with him. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And then verse 4 goes on to say this. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Oh, John is blunt, isn't he? And he goes on to say, but whoever keeps his word, look at one of the signs that when you start to obey the word of God, what happens to you? But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in Him. He who says, verse 6 goes on to say, He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Just as Jesus walked. How did He walk? In obedience to the Father. It's all about obeying Him. That's... That's why many of us are missing the joy. We're at odds with God because we're just chasing after our own things and we just neglect God. We're not humbling ourselves before Him, seeking after Him, wanting to obey Him no matter how uncomfortable it may be sometimes. The Word of God goes on to say over in chapter 3, Verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now listen, and I'm done. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies, purifies Himself just as He is pure. That means we go to war against our own sin and we submit ourselves to the Lord to follow Him. You know what this world needs today? The world does not need to see a bunch of Christians living like the world. The world today needs to see Christians that are wholly sold out to Jesus Christ living under His Lordship. People will start believing the gospel more when they see the gospel's effects in us. He is Savior, and oh, He is Lord. So today, however God has spoken, maybe we just got to get our lives right. We just got to get things right. We got to start. We got to start living for the Lord. Maybe someone needs to just give their life to Jesus. We got to stop living the lie. Let's just, be, let's just surrender to Him. Let's accept Him and receive Him and, and watch how He changes us. Maybe some need to join the church here today or 
Maybe some need to answer the call of God. You just sense God's call on your life. Maybe to, to preach the Word, whatever. You, you come and surrender. So however He's speaking, let's obey Him. Father, I thank You for this Word. Lord, I feel so inadequate. Lord, in this presentation today, I just pray You've made up for it. And you have spoken, you have put your finger on things in our lives where we're not submitting to your lordship. And I pray, Father, that we live the way you desire for us to, the way your word says to. I pray, Father, for us to live in light of the glorious future, the hope you've given us. I pray for those today, Lord, who are not saved. I pray, Lord, you will let them know, Lord God, today that. I pray they they would just call on you to be their Savior today. Maybe in this service right now, they would come forward to receive Jesus. So I just pray you'll have your way now, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please.